Good morning. Good to see each and every one of you. Uh oh, I better grab this right there. All right. Nope. I'm going to need this. Minus one thing. So, now good morning again. All right. Good to see all of you. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And uh, it is never to be taken for granted when we make it safely back on the highways. Um, we were uh, down in Florida for a few days uh, visiting my wife's parents and had Thanksgiving with them and zipped back Friday night and uh, with thousands of other cars and everything else. Uh, we weren't the only, I saw license plates from all over the place. Um, but when you make it back home safely, and those of you that traveled, I know some of you went, whether it's five hours or two hours or you know, three hours, what have you, um, it's just a blessing to get back. And hopefully you were able to, even this morning, worship off a little bit of what you ate on Thursday. So that's one of the added benefits of coming to church. You know, uh, just singing, you get to burn calories. Uh, that extra piece of pumpkin pie, you know, every little bit helps. So... Um, uh, we, had, we ate well, we ate more than well. I'm sure you guys did as well. And uh, that was a, was a blessing to see family. And those of you that are uh, still out of town, maybe you're watching us online, welcome uh, to you as well. Good to have all of you here. And as Jason said, if you're visiting, we're glad to have you here at Calvary Chapel Richmond this morning. Um, other than that, I don't have anything else. I did want to say thank you to Pastor Trevor for sharing last Sunday. Thank you for filling in the pulpit uh, while I was out last week. And I know you guys were, were blessed to, ha to have him uh, share the word. And uh, next Sunday we'll be back in the book of John. Uh, but today we'll, can, we'll finish up this second part of Haggai. And then after the first two weeks in December, we'll be in John the first two weeks. And, uh, and then after that I'll do uh, something closer to the Bethlehem nativity uh, uh, scene, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the Sundays, the 18th, and then Christmas Day falls on a Sunday this year, so just kind of be aware of that. We only have one service this year on Christmas Day. It'll be 1030, not 1045, so uh, we'll, we'll make a, you'll have like six announcements to know this, so uh, if somehow you've missed it, don't blame us by the time you get to Christmas Day. If you're out of town or something, that's fine, but if you're going to be in town, we're definitely having the service that morning. Uh, but we'll be praying as we continue to do, praying for revival. Uh, I love this nation. I love the, the, the holiday of Thanksgiving is unique to the United States. And it's been cool to see, to meet people that have moved here from around the world. Uh, I've met people from all over the world that now love Thanksgiving, that weren't born in the United States. And, and I don't have a lot of whole frame of reference for it, but just love it. How could you not with turkey and pumpkin pie and all the stuff? That, and they even embrace football and everything else now. But but really understanding that there is something uh, really important about just having gratitude and thankfulness. And, and we know from Romans chapter 1 that uh, a, a nation descends into all kinds of sin when it stops being thankful to God. Well, our country has, uh, aside from the one holiday, there's really not a thankful heart towards the Lord in our nation anymore. It's just, just open rebellion and resistance of God. And that's why we have uh, all the problems and all the issues uh, that we have. And we've been praying for revival for a long time, um, over a decade. And as I told the first service, uh, our praying for revival is 
I mean, it's been needed for 40, 50 years. Uh, it's just we are further and further away from the Lord than we've ever been before. And that's why you see our nation has literally lost its mind. It doesn't even have common sense anymore uh, or common decency. I mean, all those things are out the window. And by the way, speaking of the rain today, I'm riding in at 8.30 service, and I ride by River City Park, and there's cars pouring into River City Park, and already there was hundreds of parents standing there in umbrellas. And this was at 7-something this morning, standing there in umbrellas to watch soccer all day. And I'm like, um, we can come and worship the Lord. Amen? Uh, I mean, this is Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, like giving up, like I would think most people would even be, at least this weekend, would be kind of like, relax the calendar. for No, no, it was like raging down there. You go right down the street there and just packed, uh, standing in the rain all day. And, it, and so many people would tell me, well, I was going to make it to church, but it was really a rainy day. I'm like, really? Uh, let me take you to River City Park. Uh, let me show you, uh, let me show the dedication. Uh, or watch the NFL this afternoon at 1 o'clock, uh, whether it's raining or snowing or anything else. So, uh, But uh, we have a nation that needs to reprioritize the Lord. Amen? Amen. So we're going to pray. And we've been getting our knees uh, ever since the pandemic started. We just felt like God would have us to humble ourselves. And if you're not able to do that, if you have bad knee surgery, you're in a position where it's just too crowded where you're at, just, that's fine. Just stay seated. But let's take about 45 seconds of silence to go before the Lord. I'll close in prayer, and then we'll get into our study this morning. God, we once again bow before you. We recognize that you are a holy God, holy beyond our comprehension, mighty beyond our comprehension, worthy beyond our comprehension. And yet, because of the blood of your Son, we can call you Father. And so, Lord, we come into your presence. Father, we come into your presence as your children. If we know you've been, we've been born again by the Spirit of the living God, by the grace and mercy bestowed upon us through the gift of salvation through Jesus. Lord, we come and we humbly bow and we say thank you. This Thanksgiving weekend, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you, as the scriptures say, for so great a salvation. Thank you for the indwelling of your spirit. Thank you for the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, we pray, even this morning, those of us that know you as Lord and Savior, and Lord, if there's even one here that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon your name and be saved. But Lord, those of us that know you, even those of us that know you, Lord, nothing that we've done ever could earn us a place in eternity with you. So Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. And we ask you again this morning that you'd wash us, cleanse us, Lord. Even if we've came in here with the wrong hearts, wrong attitudes, wrong thoughts, wrong motives, we ask that you would forgive us of our pride and our sin. Lord, we look at our, at our nation, 
so much pride, so much rebellion, so much immorality, so much rejection of you, so much hatred and vitriol and violence and all the things that we see. Lord, all these are the ramifications of a nation that is unthankful, ungrateful, and has rejected you and has chosen the gods of this age, the gods of materialism, pleasure, self-pursuits. Lord, we pray that you would turn our country, the eyes of those that are in darkness, to you, Jesus. People maybe we just had Thanksgiving with or we'll soon see at Christmas, our unsaved friends and neighbors and family members, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to shine bright in these days. We ask, Lord, for an outpouring of revival in the nation, but also a great awakening in the body of Christ that you'd awaken the sleeping church in this country. And Lord, we just pray for this nation. What, what, each Sunday, Lord, praying for a country today, the nation of Portugal, that nation in the Iberian Peninsula there. Lord, we pray that you would bring the people of Portugal to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. We also lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. We, would you please give them your rest, your strength, your deliverance. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and turn with me to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the easiest way to get to the book of Haggai, just find Matthew in your Bible and go left, Malachi, then Zechariah, and then you'll find Haggai. It's two pages, well, three pages total uh, in my Bible. No, just two pages, yeah. So, one page front and back, but uh, find Matthew, go left, two books back, three books total, and you'll find the book of Haggai. I covered part one two weeks ago, then Pastor Trevor shared last week, so this is our second part. And I'll say at the outset that uh, we'll spend the majority of the time looking at the application of this uh, small book, and particularly this second chapter, as we did with the first chapter, applying it to our times and the, the same way that we can relate to that remnant in Israel, uh, they're, in, uh, they're in Jerusalem, they're in Judah, uh, the, the things that they struggled with and how they relate to the very same things that we struggle with, the things that they kind of put in place of the Lord, the things that we can put in place of the Lord the things that they struggle with from a fear perspective that we can also uh, worry about. And so we'll look at that first, but then we want to look at kind of the whole scope of what's covered in this second chapter, which actually goes well beyond their time and even beyond our time, even to the future age, even to the future coming reign of Jesus Christ. Which So uh, there's a lot packed in this two chapters uh, that speaks to the past, the present, and even the future, that redemptive plan of God. So we'll kind of finish with that and the look at the various temples that have taken place uh, in Scripture and the ones that yet remain to come. And we'll look at all that. So with all that uh, kind of said at the outset, we'll just read verses 1 through 5 to start off with. Start off with. So let me start with verse 1. Your Bible's open, Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw, who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people 
of the land, says the Lord, and work. You can stop right there. Speak this to our whole country. And work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you that we have your word to instruct us, to comfort us, to correct us, to chasten us, to give us courage, Lord, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that we have your word. May you be magnified. May your word be magnified. May your spirit speak to each person what they need. We know that this word can speak exactly what is needed to each and every heart. Lord, I pray that you would help me, empower me, anoint me, for I could never do what you would have me to do without your help. Lord, that I would teach it in a way that honors and glorifies you and that all of us, Lord, would have hearts ready to apply and obey what we hear from your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We left off two weeks ago with the Lord speaking through Haggai, the prophet, and calling the returned exiles from Persia and Babylon to consider their ways. They returned to Jerusalem by the hand of God, and they had started off well, rebuilding the altar, restarting the sacrifices. They laid the foundation of the temple. Then after two years of work and progress amidst opposition from the surrounding enemies and the struggles and strains of the job, you ever feel that? The struggles and strains of the job. They took a pause, and then for the next 14 years, the temple laid in ruins. During that same time, you'll recall, they built their own homes, they paneled their houses, they made them nicer, they spent all kinds of time and energy improving their standard of living, increasing their wealth, increasing their possessions, and trying to carve out just a life of leisure, pleasure, The people convinced themselves that it was not time to rebuild the temple, even though God had never told them to stop. They convinced themselves it was time to spend all their time on themselves. But their self-absorption did not go as planned, as they were continually seeing financial losses, droughts, loss of crops, loss of herds, rising gas prices, stock market, (laughs) tanking, 401k losing value. Property going so high they couldn't afford it. Interest rates rise in the place that ah, now I can't buy and I'm stuck in an apartment forever. Sound familiar? That was actually our, our time. I just blended 2,500 years right there. None of them recognized that the Lord was ruining their efforts to build their wealth and to build their personal dreams while his temple lay in ruins. But Haggai the prophet, he was raised up. We don't know exactly where he came from. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere to tell them to consider their ways. And I can tell you right now, God would tell us to consider our ways. Amen? Amen. To examine their lives, to examine their priorities, the futility of their efforts, their lost zeal for the Lord. As Jesus spoke to the church in Revelation, you've left your first love. And to go back to a place of obedience and faith and gratitude 
true thankfulness and to once again serve the Lord and his purposes, not serve themselves. And praise God, they not only heard Haggai the prophet, they heard the voice of God, they did it. They repented, they responded to the preaching of the prophet and the very words God had spoken. And the remnant of the people there in Jerusalem, they not only repented, but they showed the fruit of genuine repentance and sorrowness for their sins because they once again feared God and they chose to serve him and not their flesh. And God responded to their obedience by stirring the hearts of the leaders and the people, and he gave them the assuring words. God gave them the assuring words in that second message when he came with these words of love and forgiveness. He told them, I am with you. Don't you want to hear God say that to you every day for the remainder of 2022? I am with you. And into 2023, I am with you. When you go to work tomorrow, I am with you. When you go to the doctor on Tuesday or Wednesday, I am with you. Whatever it is, that's all they needed in this world. That's all we need, that God is with us. Not things with us, but the Savior, the creator of all things. But that's, a, that's not the end of the story. We saw they repent, they received, that God, they received the forgiveness of God, that he was with them. That's not the end. For one, the work now begins. He, God said right here in this second message, and tell, tell the people to work. Do the work. Recommitment always results in a recommitting to the work and a restarting of the work. And the work of sanctification is God's work in us, conforming the people to the heart and character of God. And the work of grace and the understanding of that work of grace and what God provides, that goes forward in their lives and in our lives. And lastly, as we'll look at in verses 6 through the remainder of the chapter, there's going to be some new revelation. We'll look at that in just a few minutes. Uh, this work of grace and forgiveness. And then there'll be a resurrection pointing towards a resurrected temple that foreshadows the very one who will come with grace and forgiveness and he's going to resurrect a greater temple and he's going to glorify the temple to come for far more glory than was in the past temple with Solomon's temple and any temple that has ever been seen. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title this morning, Lessons from Haggai, the best is yet to come. We want to look at how the present application applies to us, but we also want to look to the future because there's more in this book that we'll see that's pointing towards the very end of the age. If you're taking notes, we'll just look at two, uh, two bullet points or two sections this morning, if you will. The first I've titled Missing Perspective and Power. Missing Perspective and Power. About a month, so we read these first five verses, about a month after Haggai had preached the message from the Lord uh, when we kind of came to the end of chapter 1, about a month after he had said to the people with their repentance, God wants you to know, I am with you. The Lord forgave, he was encouraging the people. The prophet returns here about a month after that with another message from the Lord. And this particular message, what we just read, these first five verses, this message was given at the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day of the Feast 
of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. So God, who comes to Tabernacle with us, preaches this message on the last day through Haggai, of course, on this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the temple rebuild, they have started, they repented, they got started back with the work, they picked up their hammers again, they started going back up into the mountains of Lebanon and getting the cedars and everything else and starting to do the work. The temple rebuild has now been up and running for about a full month after, if you remember, 14 years of inactivity, 14-year hiatus of doing what God had commanded. But they're just at the outset of what is going to take four full years to complete. It's going to take four years to complete the process, but they're only one month in. Now, that's if they stay on course and not return to their old ways. Now, we have the advantage of already knowing the outcome, don't we? We have the whole book. We know what they did. We know what they didn't do. We know what God says. But they didn't know that they would complete the project four years later. I'm sure they doubted their own selves you ever doubt yourself? Anyone here ever doubt yourself? <laughs> I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if I'm up to this. I'm not sure if I'm up to the task. I'm not sure if I'll finish. I, I'm going I'm to start this study. Will I even complete it? I'm going to start this task. Don't ever start certain renovation projects. You know, your, your spouse will be saying, two years later, you are you know, still working on this? You know, that kind of thing. Will I finish? We doubt our, will we remain faithful? I'm sure they doubted, will they be able to keep the same zeal for the Lord? You ever have those moments where you're just so passionate in love with Jesus, you're like, why can't I stay like this 24-7? Would they have the faith to finish? The Lord, of course, knows all of their internal questions. He knows your internal questions, my internal questions, our doubts, our worries, our distractions, our discouragements, our fatigue, our weaknesses, our sins, our habits, and the list goes on. We're a lot more messed up and imperfect than we make ourselves look on the outside sometimes, right? But God sees all. He sees how fragile we are. He saw how fragile they are. He sees how fragile we are. He sees how imperfect we are. And he sends Haggai to the people on a project inspection. Now, you don't always like it when someone comes and inspects your work, but God sends the prophet to inspect. How are they doing after a month in? And to check up on them, but also to come and give them a message, to infuse them with faith and to infuse them with confidence and for them to start to see things even a month after kind of repenting, they already their vision's already blurry a little bit. That's why we always need the Word of God to constantly reset our vision, constantly refocus. You know, when you're driving, you don't just hold the wheel like this and say, straight. No, that's constant little adjustments, and God's constantly doing that uh, with us. But he's come to check on the project, but also infuse their faith and, and to give them a confidence from the Lord and give him God's vantage point, God's perspective, rather than their own. Because their own is very limited. You and I have very limited perspective. First of all, our knowledge of anything is very limited to begin with. Amen? We can only see a little bit of the factors, and God says, no, there's a thousand other factors you're not even considering. And our natural view of things sometimes can also be pretty 
pessimistic. We have any pessimists that are here today? I mean, I, I, I'll never forget when I first saw the, the definition of a pessimist is an optimist with experience. And, and, I, and I understand that, uh, and there's a lot of truth to that, that, um, that yeah, and I'm not really pessimistic. I just know how things really end up, and this is going to fail, and that's going to fail, and, and the, the, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong, Murphy's Law, that kind of thing. But our view of things can be pessimistic at times. And we're also prone to comparing things. How do I look compared to they look? What do they wear? Did I dress up too much? Did I not dress up enough? How does their car look? Hey, you know, Jason just washed his. I didn't wash mine. That kind of thing. <laughs> you know, so all of these things, we compare ourselves. We compare our families. We compare what we have. We compare what we've done. We compare uh, careers, education, all these things. Sometimes we won't admit we compare, and God said, yeah, you did. I just thought, saw your entire thought process. <laughs> You'll act like you don't do any of that stuff, and you do. And Haggai, by the prompting of the Lord, he asked the people, he said, who is left in verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? He already knew how they see it. He's this is somewhat rhetorical. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not as no, in your eyes as nothing? He was stepping on their toes. He asked them on the rim of the people that had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. How do you see it now? How does that, what does it look like to you? What, this kind of rebuild? looks like nothing to you. Anyone who had seen Solomon's temple most likely would have had to have been in their 80s plus. I mean, this was the senior elder men and women that were with that 50,000 remnant that came back. They had to be in their 80s plus given the 70-year period of exile. But anyone who had seen the first temple, it would have left quite the impression. There are certain places that I've gone that have left quite the impression uh, when I first went to New York City for the first time, I had to go there for business training years ago, and it was late, late 90s, and I remember the first time I got on the subway and I had to go straight to the Twin Towers. And I did. Went straight down and looked straight up. It was closed that day because it was a Sunday, uh, the observatory or whatever else, but I had to go there because I like certain buildings. I wanted to see the Pentagon when I was there in D.C. I wanted to see this nation's capital. When I went to the Grand Canyon, that made an impression upon me, right? You just look over it, and all of a sudden... It's so massive. Certain things just make an impression upon you. But the, top, the, the, the temple that Solomon had built, it made quite the impression. Solomon had spared no expense in building the temple. No expense. Using the best materials, the best artisans. He contracted people from literally all over the known world and probably beyond the known world. I think Solomon actually... Uh, was well familiar with all the continents on earth. I think that all that knowledge existed then. Uh, but he brought people from all over, the best artisans in the world. It is estimated that in today's dollars, in today's cost, today's cost, building of the temple, the first temple, would be between $3 billion and $6 billion to build Solomon's temple. Some estimates, and I don't know how they are this off, but I, I looked up and there was different ranges. Some estimates as high as 120 billion. Now I'm not sure how you go from 3 billion to 120 billion. Maybe it's government actuaries or whatever. I'm not sure. But um, but anyway, King 
Solomon, he gave Hiram, who was the Phoenician king of Tyre, 20 towns in Galilee to help pay the materials debt. And, uh, you know, so 20 cities or 20 towns. The highest point of Solomon's temple was about 20 stories high. That's really tall for that ancient time period. His temple dedication included the sacrifice. At the, sacrifice, at the dedication, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. I don't even know how you do that, you know. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep on the same day. This is like a nonstop operation, all to give glory to God. I put up on the screen a model rendering of Solomon's temple and how it towered over Jerusalem's landscape and it was overlaid with gold and it shined. You could see it for miles coming up, uh, whether you're coming up from Jericho or up from the Mediterranean side. Uh, it, you can see the city of David slopes down. That's where David's palace and Solomon's palace would be. And, and, uh, but the, the temple up there on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, this uh, overlooking uh, the entire city area and looking back towards on the east side, the Mount of Olives. But uh, Matthew Henry had this to say, and this would give you the mindset of the older exiles. I'll put it up on the screen, what he had to say about the older exiles thinking. One could remember the gold with which it was overlaid. Another, the precious stones with which it was garnished. One could describe the magnificent porch. Another of the pillars. And where are these now? And by the way, sometimes uh, people that have seen a great work of God instead of appreciating it, spend too much time living in the past, saying, man, it wasn't like that back in the Jesus movement. Man, it wasn't like that back when I was a kid. Man, it wasn't like that. We, we, we really knew how to serve the Lord back then. And it's good to know that God did those great things, and it's good to remember what God, but you can't live back there. You have to appreciate what God did, but not live in the past of what God did. We can appreciate, and I don't know if that, hopefully that makes sense to you, but God wants us to not forget the past but not live in it either. So there's a balance that the Holy Spirit gives us to have a great appreciation. I appreciate what God did with Pastor Chuck and Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa in those days, but I'm not trying to relive it. I have to, whatever the Lord wants to do right now, I know it's the same Holy Spirit, and we want to uh, learn from the past, but not live in the past. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's that, that balance that we have to strike. But those who saw the former glory of the temple they saw what was being built now as totally inferior. They didn't have Solomon's money. They didn't have Solomon's wealth. Solomon might have been the richest man to ever live. We know he was the wisest and smartest intellectually man to ever live, but it's possible, it's plausible that he was even the richest man that the world has ever seen in real dollars. But regardless, they didn't have Solomon's wealth. They didn't have the, the wealth of Israel. That was the height of the empire, uh, the height of, of the kingdom in Israel's past. They didn't have that kind of money. They didn't have any of that. But they still, looking back on what they remembered of Solomon, they did not think that this temple was even worthy of a rededication to God. It was paltry. It was inferior. And their perspectives, uh, though, their perspective was limited. They weren't seeing it as God sees it. It's flawed. It's a wrong perspective. I, I, I'm sure you guys know this, but it bears reminding. Uh, God does not look down and say, you know what, that guy is six foot four, full of muscles, 
handsome and this person is small and they don't have much net worth and they're not the most beautiful person on earth. So I love this really handsome 6'4", but I don't have any care for this one over here. God doesn't look at anyone like that. Amen? He does, and, and gold to him is the same as paper mache. It doesn't matter. It's all just molecules to God in a sense. Now, I know that he uses it to portray things. and There'll be streets of gold, but materials don't matter to God. He's created all the materials. Water, gold doesn't matter. So he doesn't look at the things that we look at, and we, he doesn't place the value. He places the value on righteousness, on the heart. He looked at David's heart. Not, you know, Saul was impressive looking. David, not so as a young man. But their perspectives were wrong. Their perspectives were flawed. They also had this perspective that they should be producing something for God. That they should be doing something great for God. God hasn't asked us to do anything great for God. He's just told us to serve Him. He does the great part. Not us. Matthew Henry went on to wisely say, Our gracious God is pleased with us if we do in sincerity as well as we can in His service. Yet our proud hearts will scarcely let us be pleased with ourselves unless we do it as well as others who abilities far exceed ours. You know, when you stop trying to compete with other people, you're going to find yourself in a much better place. You don't have to do as good as everybody else. You have to do what God's asked you to do. Amen? There's, there's always someone that can do it better than you. There's always a Solomon, if you will, that can produce something more than you and I can. There's better, way better pastors than me, better orators or whatever. There's better people to do what you do in your work. That, that's not what God looks at. He's saying, are you doing it in sincere surrender and giving me the glory and obedience to me? It's either pride or a wrong perspective. And, there, and sometimes it's both. Sometimes both pride and a wrong perspective. But anyone that belongs to the Lord should never be competing with the past, with one another, with the present. Uh, I mean, I tell you, it, it's a sad commentary, but the reality is we have many ministries in America competing with other ministries in America. And they may not admit it on the outside, but God knows the heart. I have no desire, I mean zero, zilch to compete with any church in Richmond. None. Or any other pastor or anything else. I, don't, I just want to be, I want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. How about you? Not, hey, you were the best grandparent the world has ever seen. You were the best mother the world. God, who cares? Everyone, I, uh, we were down in Florida, and I uh, we went to one of the amusement parks, and I must have saw so many shirts that said, best dad ever. I, you can't all be the best dad ever. <laughs> I mean, I told my wife, I said, I've seen about 15 best dad ever shirts. One of these guys is it. I just don't know which one it is. And I didn't have the shirt, so it couldn't have been me. So, but it's just funny how... Um, our perspective of ourselves. And I get that. I, it's just funny. I mean, you can have that shirt and it's for fun. I get that. But there is a certain element that people are always comparing ministries and things. And, well, they have a bigger building and they have more, they have more cars in the parking lot. Or all. God's in, why, why are you looking at any of that stuff? That's what, even Samuel, who is a godly man, made the same mistake. And God's like, wrong. No, not, not that son. Not that son. Not that son. Not that son. God has never been impressed by anything we build. We need to understand that. Even if it's in his name, 
We shouldn't be amazed or drawn to bigger, more expensive, more attractive, more famous equals better. Uh, I'm actually really glad that um, when, when, it, when I went into the business world in the mid-90s, I remember right around that time, Walmart started building bigger and bigger stores. And then I remember we even hired the company I used to work for. One of the executives from Walmart came to work for us, and we, they were building super Walmarts. But lately, I have fallen in love with the smallness of Aldi's. And uh, the fact that, you know, when I forget something in a super Walmart, I don't have to go a 10-minute walk to the other end to find what I missed over here. So if I'm in a tiny Aldi's, I'm like three aisles away from what I forgot. You know, so I'm just saying that my, that, that my simple illustration that bigger is not always better. Sometimes it's a burden. Sometimes it's overkill. Sometimes it's just way too much. And God's like, I didn't ask everything to be bigger and more magnificent. God is the one that uh, brings the glory to things. We shouldn't be drawn to everything as, if it's more expensive. Lots of things that are expensive can't do anything for you. Amen? But some things that are very, like a sunset that's gorgeous that God puts in the sky for absolutely zero cost to you, you're like, wow, that's more impressive. In fact, God routinely, all throughout the Bible, has used the small things, the insignificant things, the poor things, the weak things, and still does to bring him glory. Here's a few I put up on the screen uh, in the scriptures from Zechariah 4.10. For who has despised the day of small things? God says, what you think is small might be the biggest. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, we're going to look at this just in a few weeks, and that little tiny Bethlehem, town of Bethlehem, but you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one the ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. No one would ever think that that tiny little manger scene had the creator of the universe. Anyone in today's big shot world would say, that's very insignificant, uh, that's not important at all, what's happening in Wall Street or what's happening in London, what's happening in Rome. Or New no, no, God said, no, no, you're missing everything emanates from that. 1 Corinthians 1.26, for uh, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many that graduated top of class from MIT and Harvard and uh, have all the accolades and Nobel Peace Prizes and front of time magazine covers. Revelation 1.8, I see, I know your works. See, I have set before you um, that should be 2.8, not actually 1.8. But Revelation 2.8 should say, I see, I know your works. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and not denied my name. Revelation 2.8, there in the church of Philadelphia. They didn't have much strength, but they had the power of the Holy Spirit, not denying the name of God. And don't forget... Thinking about Solomon's temple, God allowed that former temple to be destroyed. Amen? He could have prevented it from being destroyed. He was never about the building. He was, about, he was never about the gold and all that stuff. He was about the God that inhabited the building, not the building itself. He allowed it to be destroyed. They ended up, in the time of Jesus, they were swearing by the name of the temple. You, you recall that? They, would, they had such a pedestal for things and material things. Even the temple is a material thing. It has a great imagery, 
that God was trying to portray, but uh, they fell in love with all kinds of things. Remember the, the snake on the, on the uh, pole that they had to look? They ended up worshiping that. They were never told to worship that. But God allowed the former temple to be destroyed. He was the glory of the temple. The temple was not the glory. God, the glory left the temple whenever God left. It wasn't the materials. It wasn't its size. It wasn't its grandeur. In fact, 550 years after this time period, the time of Haggai, the remnant there, the disciples, 550 years later, they'd be sitting there on the slope of the Mount of Olives, and they'd be looking down at the temple. And remember, they marveled at the temple. They could not believe in their lifetime that they were witnessing one of the ancient wonders of the world because the temple that Herod had expanded was so magnificent. I put up on the screen, there's a rendering of Herod's temple. That was a 46-year project. 46 years they worked on what's called Herod's temple. You could call it the third temple if you wanted to, because it really wasn't Herod's temple. The temple all belonged to God anyway. But nevertheless, Herod was the one that expanded it on behalf of the Jewish people. He upgraded it. It would be like you having a 1,000 square foot home and when you were done having a 30,000 square foot home because he did not take Zerubbabel's temple out. He just expanded Zerubbabel's temple. It became part and parcel of the expansion of the massive temple mount there. There's a huge makeover of Zerubbabel's temple. So it would be Zerubbabel's plus all the added 46 years of, of additional magnificence that Herod had put into. He didn't even see the end of it. He had died before it finished. The project had actually finished. But the Lord would allow that magnificent temple, which would be the third temple, if you will, Herod's temple, he would allow that one to be destroyed as well. I'll come back to that. But let's look at verses 4 and 5 as we kind of close this first section. Verses 4 and 5. So he kind of says, look, you guys see the temple as nothing, but I, I want to tell you something. Haggai says, I want, I want to speak, not only correct your perspective, but I want to give you some power from the Lord. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua. He was the high priest, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, the entire rest of the congregation, the rest of the remnant, says the Lord, for, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenant with you when, I, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. As Haggai is sent here once again to speak to the leaders, Governor Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and to the people, his message is multifaceted. Much like the scriptures. The scriptures are very multifaceted. They speak to us in many ways simultaneously. His words are to correct the people's perspective. They, they had a wrong perspective. They thought this temple was nothing. They thought the other one was great. This one's not worth anything. Why are we even doing this in the first place? It's not even worthy of anything. Their perspective was wrong. But they also had another emotion that they were dealing with. They had fear. And if we do continue on with this job, will it cost us our lives? Will our enemies come back and kind of take us out while we're trying to build this nothing of a temple in any way? First of all, it's not worth much. So is it even worth us dying for it? No matter what God's put in your hand, if God's put it in your hand, it's worth dying for but it's worth living for. Amen? 
But he came to encourage them. He came to correct their vision, but also to encourage them and to give them the confidence and the assurance of them. And he said to be strong in the Lord. The same enemies that whispered, that intimidated, that caused the initial pause 14 year, er, years earlier are going to resurface. And they have resurfaced. They are back again to kind of sow seeds of, you know, if you guys start this, we're going to tie you up in lawsuits. We're going to come and harm you. You're not going to finish it anyway, so you should just give up. But remember that post-repentance promise of the Lord to them. God said, I am with you. And here he says the same thing in this follow-up message. He says again, I am with you. For all of us as pastors, we are allowed to teach the same thing week after week. Well, elements of it, right? Because he says, I am with you in the previous message, and he comes back again. He says again, God wants me to tell you again, I am with you. By the way, God wants me to tell you a million times, he is with us. Amen? The same promise that the Lord had given, to, he mentions that when you came out of Egypt, my spirit was with you and do not, not to fear. The same promise that the Lord gave to the leaders way back then coming out of Egypt. Who were the leaders? Moses, and Aaron, and Joshua was the understudy, and he would become the leader when Moses was, went home to be with the Lord. But Moses and Joshua, they saw Pharaoh defeated. They saw the Canaanite kings respectively defeated by the power of God. And the same promise and the same power that was promised to Moses, that was promised to Joshua, that was promised to the people, that was promised to the 12 tribes, he says that same power and spirit that was with them then into the wilderness, into the promised land, is with you now. Because God is still the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen? Isn't it great for us to know that the same one who knocked down the walls of Jericho is with us here today? And he's not worried about, well, the government this or this company or woke America. He's not worried about any of that. He said to Joshua, and Joshua said it to the people, in, ver, in cha, Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all that which my, Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to it from the right hand to the left. God doesn't want us to focus on our small resources. He doesn't want us to focus on our frailties, on our past glory. He doesn't want us to focus on our enemies. He wants us to trust in him and be, when you trust in him, you begin to feel the strength of the Lord. When you trust in yourself, you're like Peter. You start slipping right down into the water because you've taken your eyes off of the one who has all the resources, who has all the strength. But God is telling us to, in his strength, do the task he's given us. In his strength, make disciples. In his strength, love your wives, husband, as Christ loved the church. In his strength, wives, love your husband. In his strength, teach your children. In his strength, minister one to another. Say, I'm exhausted. Well, God will give you strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And to do it in the courage that comes from the Lord. The prospering is always in the trusting, then obeying, and then the doing. The trusting, then obeying, and then the doing. Then comes prospering. You don't get to like prosper, say, well, Lord, if you just prosper me, then I'll trust you and obey and do it. Said, no, no, you're going to go do it, then I'll prosper you. It doesn't work the other way around. Moses had to, I mean, Abraham had to leave and go to a land he had not seen. First, the prospering, the son of the promise, Isaac comes many years later. He had to first go and do. For the sake of time this morning, let me 
uh, read verse 6 through 23, and I'm going to briefly explain them as I go through, so we won't do it the same way, but just for the sake of time. I'm going to explain them as I go through. Then I'm going to pull back uh, at the very end to a timeline uh, that I'll put up on the screen that coincides with the spiritual, the applicable, and the prophetic understanding, because all of it's there. We have the spiritual understanding, you have the applicable, like how does this apply to our, our daily living here in 2022, but also the prophecy that's in this book that relates to thousands of years in advance. We want to kind of take a look at that uh, and it, all beyond where we're at right now. One of the cool things about going verse by verse of the Bible is um, you never have to try and create what you think God should say. Because like this book, it has these really practical things and it has this deep prophetic things and it's all mixed into a very small two chapters. And God's like, this is everything I want you to know. And you're not understanding why I have such breadth in this, but just go ahead and receive it from me. And I like to go back to my, when I went first time I went to the Grand Canyon, only time I went to the Grand Canyon, you know, I, just to sometimes see how small you are compared to the enormity of God in and of itself is good for us. And I believe that this little book does that. It shows when we kind of look at the panoramic, which we will in just a minute, it shows us how small we are and how dependent we must be on God to finish any task, but also his grace and his redemption in the middle of it. And it points all the way to the glory of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, the second section, multiplied perfection and prophecy, multiplied perfection and prophecy. Let's read verses six through the end of the chapter. And like I said, I'll just stop a couple of places and explain what he's saying. Some of it's self-explanatory. But verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, by the way, when it says Lord of hosts, host is all the angelic millions and millions of angels and the trillions and trillions of hosts of, of the universe, all the stars that we cannot even count. The Lord of hosts is the God who holds all that in the palm of his hand. That's what it means. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Just to kind of put them in perspective, anything y'all worried about, I'm holding the entire universe. Once more, it is a little while. Now, with, that, with God, everything's a little while because he looks at time like we look at a map. But it's a long while for us. It's 2,500 years from this was written, and he's speaking beyond us, and he's speaking all the way into eternity. But he says, a little while, I'm going to shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Um, all, of our, all of our green plans are not going to work. All of our earth preservation techniques are not going to work. God's going to shake the entire earth. Uh, I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's probably capitalized in your Bible. Uh, most scholars believe, and I believe, that this is speaking of none other than Jesus himself, the desire of all nations. Well, not everyone in every nation desires Jesus. That's true. But someone from every nation does, every tribe and every tongue. So he is the desire of all nations because all nations will have born-again people. Therefore, he's the desire of all nations. Not all souls, all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. Which temple? Well, it's a temple. He's going to fill the temple of Zerubbabel. We'll say, well, hold on. What comes after Zerubbabel? Well, he have, Herod expands that temple. Does the glory of God ever fill it? Yes, when Jesus walks in. 
But he's even speaking beyond that temple. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Even beyond that temple. I will fill this temple because he says he's going to shake all the nations. This is, a, this is a temple that will exist after the shaking of the nations. A literal shaking of the earth. Says the Lord, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. Everything that's made Solomon's temple, everything that will be part of this future temple, but also all silver and gold on anywhere on planet earth belongs to God. You don't own anything, brother and sister. It all belongs to God, says the Lord of hosts. He likes to say the Lord of hosts here because he's reminded that God owns the heavens of the heavens. The glory of this latter temple, now we know he's speaking of a future temple because it's explicitly said. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. And we know that Herod's temple will be greater, but there's even a greater temple than both of those. And in this place, I will give peace. Someday the Prince of Peace is going to sit in this temple, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 10, on the 24th day, now that ends that message. That ends that message from Haggai. So then verse 10, uh, no, Haggai's going to come back at a different time. He's going to preach another message. So this would be like me coming back on a future Sunday. All right, you, I, that's what I preached last week. Here we go. Verse 10, new message. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, he's like, this is how God thinks on planes. We, who would think to write this here but God? Uh, if one uh, carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, with the, edge of, uh, with the edge he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? They know the law. The priest said, no. No, if you're carrying holy meat and it happens to touch something that's just kind of generic like some bread or wine, it doesn't make that thing holy. The meat is holy because it's going to be, it's sanctified, sanct, uh, uh, it's set apart for the Lord, but it doesn't make anything touch as holy. Verse 13, and Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of, they, because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? So now they touch bread or they touch the holy meat or they touch wine or they touch anything else. The priest said, yes, it should be unclean. Now that's what the law said. If they had touched a body, there had to be a length of time that they actually had to go through this purification process. Otherwise, anything they touched would be unclean. So they were right. The holy meat couldn't make unholy things holy, but sin or decay or disease could make anything it touched unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, now here's where God's speaking straight, straight to the people. So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. God is not building their self-esteem there at all, is he? <laughs> He's telling them, oh, by the way, even if you did everything great, everything you do is unclean compared to my righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is filthy rag. The best, most godly day you've ever lived is not enough to earn you a second in heaven. Amen? And God is saying, everything I'm going to do through you is just me doing it through you. It's not because you were so great. It's not because you were finally the most obedient people on earth. God says, everything you touch is unclean, but I'm going to make it clean. And someday God will look at us and say, you are clean only because he sees the blood of Jesus. Amen? So we see the redemption plan of God here. It's all of grace. Verse 15, and now carefully consider this from this day forward. From before, this, from, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came 
to a heap of 20 epos, uh, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me. This is just like America. God's like, I'm the one that's messing up your economy. I'm the one that's raising your gas prices. I'm the one that is allowing you to have COVID, blah, blah, and all of it, and yet you're not turning to me, says the Lord. Now consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, by the way, he calls it the Lord's temple, not Zerubbabel's. We use it for a title, but every temple belongs to the Lord. Consider this. Is the seed still in the barn? Question mark. As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. When they had restarted the project of building the temple, because they had had those years of things not going the way they thought, they worked really hard to make their lives perfect, and they weren't perfect. They kept going to the doctor's office. They kept losing money. They kept gaining money only to lose it. Crops, mildew, hail, all the things that were mentioned here. God says, I sent all these things, and you didn't turn to me. When they finally did turn to him, a month into the project, they thought God would restore all their losses immediately, and that hadn't happened yet. And sometimes when you pray, God doesn't answer your prayers immediately. Amen? Sometimes God says, You're gonna, I'm going to wait and see, is your heart in the right place? But God had tested them for a little while now, and this is now past a month. He comes back another time. So now we have a longer period of time, and God has tested them. And their heart has been in a good place, and they've been patiently waiting. God says, now I'm going to bless the fruit of your hands. And in your lives, God, maybe things that you're praying for, you just keep doing what God's asked you to do. Do it with a thankful heart, a joyful heart, and out of, out of nowhere, God might say, now I'm going to bless that in a way you never expected. So that's what he's saying here. Verse 20, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So this is his final message. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth and will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. We're looking way down the hallway of time here. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. Now, certainly this has application to many things between now and the end of the age, but it's inclusive of the end of the age. So it can include World War II, it could be you know, the Crusades, all kinds of things are included in this. But there is a shaking that's bigger than all the other shakings coming at the end that dwarfs all other shakings, where he says, I'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms and overthrow the chariots, and those who ride on them, the horse and their riders, shall come down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, again using that Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, who's of the line of David, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. David, the, the whole lineage of David, the signet ring being the kingly lineage, that David's line would produce a ruler that would be the one that would be the desire of nations, that would bring in peace. So all of this is connected. So let me kind of sum it all up as we come to a close here. The remnant there in Jerusalem, they had a job to do. God had given them a job to do for their little slice of time in, in this world. They had a job to do, and to do it in the mercy and in the forgiveness of God and in the perfecting grace of God. They would realize that their whole life, no matter what they touch, technically it should all be unholy. But God had sanctified. Technically, everything you and I touch is unholy, but God sanctifies us by the blood of Jesus and allows us to be useful in his hand 
not that we bring anything to the table. We, the only thing we bring to the table is our sins that he has to wash away. Everything else, you didn't produce a breath this morning. You, didn't have your, you did not make your heart work. God allowed it to work. So the, everything is but by the grace of God. And the strength and the blessing of God comes according to his will and according to his timing. He was going to help them withstand the enemies, withstand their own discouragement, and finish what he would give them. He would be the one that would renew the land. They wouldn't be able to renew the land if they wanted to. You and I can't make rain fall, even though they're trying this in China. We can't. Only God can do these things. And so he was the one that would bless the harvest and the seeds and the fruit trees. Jesus said, if we abide in him, we will do what? Bear much fruit. He didn't say, you're gonna, you bear fruit and then I'll come and bless it. No, he says, abide in me, then you'll bear fruit. They would see his promised goodness in, the, in their days, in their lifetime. We might not see wealth, but we would see disciples and salvations in this church and in this fellowship. That's the kind of things that God, those are the things that God will do in our lifetime. But God's redemptive work in them uh, was for a work in their days. And you and I have a work for us to do in our days. And it was important in their piece of time, but it was yet just one of many pieces of God's fabric and God's massive quilt from Genesis to Revelation of everything he is doing and will do. We're all just a little stitching piece in that quilt, right? But God is showing them a little bit of the entire plan, his redemptive plan for humanity and for Israel and, in fact, for the world. And he even is pointing to a living temple that was yet to be revealed. The glory of the Lord, this living temple, which is in parallel to the redemptive plan of God, which is started all the way back in the garden. Uh, God's desire to bring salvation or redemption, which is forgiveness, um, to anyone that will come to him. But in that, we also see this, he's going to shake the nations. There's the parallel warning that not only does God always offer salvation, but those that reject it, there's going to be judgment. He's going to shake every nation. He's going to flip every chariot. He's going to upset every rider, everyone that says, I don't need your help. Some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So he's saying in the middle of all this, keep your eyes on the one who has redeemed you by grace and not on the things of this world. For those that hate and reject the living temple to come, just as the enemies, they hated the remnant, they hated them rebuilding the temple, in the future the enemies of the living temple would recognize, they wouldn't recognize Jesus as the living temple, but they didn't know that what they hated about Jesus was the fact that he was the temple in their presence. They wanted him destroyed. They wanted him removed, just like the people in that time wanted the temple not to be rebuilt. When the time Jesus comes, they want him removed. But they had no ability, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, they have no ability to fulfill their evil desires apart from three days. Because Jesus tells us clearly that he is the temple. We don't even have to guess about it. I have it up on the screen, but it's not, it's not on that one. But it is on your screen, so there we go. Uh, Jesus says in John 2.19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple, which took 46 years to build. Like, how are you going to raise it up in three days? But he was letting them know that of all the temples you guys adore, the greatest one is in your midst, the temple of the Lord Jesus himself. The word tabernacle, to go back to the first one, tabernacle means dwelling place. Temple means place of worship. 
So God tabernacles with us as we come to a place of worship. The tabernacle and the temple, they both contained what we know as the Holy of Holies, where God would come and rest there at the mercy seat at the, um, at the, um, where the two angels would come together there and at the, uh, in the mercy seat and there in the uh, Holy of Holies, you have the holiness of God, which is to be worshiped, not seen after salvation. Jesus brings us into the Holy of Holies. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was in there is what I was trying to say. But we now know that Jesus, the desire of the nations, Emmanuel, God with us, the living temple, he has come first to tabernacle among us, which we'll look at in this Christmas season coming up. But at the end of the age, he's going to bring judgment, but he's also going to bring all of us and fit us into. We're already knitted into the temple anyway. We're already, according to the New Testament, we are the temple of the living God. We're each little stones, if you will, in the invisible temple. But he's going to bring us home to the eternal temple at the end of the age. So let me kind of close with this timeline that I wanted to put up there for you. And this will kind of bring us to a close. Um, but I wanted you to see uh, all the temples in Scripture. So it starts with the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the only mobile uh, temple, if you will. It's called the tabernacle. But it was set up in the wilderness, and they would move it from place to place, and the priests would have to carry it on poles. They would reset it up, and you had the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Holies. that had the same layout as the temple, had an outer court and all of that, but it was obviously much smaller, and it was mobile, and they could, uh, they could take it uh, through that 40-year uh, journey through the wilderness. Then Solomon comes along, perhaps the richest man, certainly one of the richest men that ever lived, David actually planned the temple, but God said, David, you can't build the temple because you've shed much blood. And so Solomon, his son, built the temple. Uh, you can see most of these temples were desecrated or destroyed because none of them would be permanent. Um, it's the presence of God that's always the permanent piece. But the temples themselves, uh, tabernacle, we don't know where that, those materials are <laughs> these days. The Solomon's temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. It was desecrated by the Judean kings, including Manasseh. Then Zerubbabel's temple is really um, the, the first rebuild. So after Solomon's is, is destroyed, they come back and they rebuild it. Uh, it was envisioned by Zerubbabel to build much, much less impressive. And then Herod takes Zerubbabel's temple and expands it massively. And it's then later destroyed by Titus, who becomes the emperor of Rome at a later date. So that brings us to the present time. There is no temple in Israel today. Uh, there's only the remnants. You have the, uh, the, the western wall there, which is sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall. You have the western wall, which is only piece left. I mean, but the temple is anchored into Mount Moriah itself. So that part, of course, the mountain is still there, which was part of the temple as well. But Jesus said he was the temple that he would raise himself up, and then he's knitted us into the temple. If you're born again, you're a little stone inside the living temple of God, which includes our brothers and sisters in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Australia, South America, the Pacific Islands. We are part of the living temple. We have nothing to add to it. Jesus is the one that um, sanctifies us to be part of his temple. But another temple is coming in the tribulation. The nation of Israel, I believe, preceding the tribulation, the nation of Israel is going to rebuild the temple. 
but it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, and it's going to be destroyed by the Antichrist. And you're going to have all the nations of the world come there for a massive battle, and it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled to the ground, which brings us to the Millennium Temple. And Jesus will build that temple. He already gave us the blueprints. It's in the book of Ezekiel. He will have that temple be brought into existence. Uh, it will be all, only born again, saved by the blood of Jesus. People will even be allowed in the temple. No lost person will be allowed. There will be lost people on the earth at that time, but they'll have to come to Christ for salvation before they could even enter into the millennium reign temple. If you are born again, you will be gainfully employed during that thousand years by the Lord himself. If you are living for all your, uh, your best life now, uh, I would, I would uh, advise you to change plans. Uh, because if you want to see what life can really be like, the millennium reign, it says the former things will not even be remembered. We think there's so many impressive things that happen in history. When you get the millennium, nothing of the former world will even be remembered. It would be just, it would be like the dust on the bottom of your foot. And God's going to come and he's going to inhabit that temple with the very presence of Jesus, uh, the signet ring. David seems to have a role in that uh, coming temple. Uh, much more. I do want to do a second prophecy series on this whole thing in 2023. So I am going to do one where we're going to talk about all the millennium reign and all those kind of things. But, uh, but all that gives way to finally at the end of the millennium, the new Jerusalem comes down and the temple of heaven is none other than God and the Son of God, they are the temple. And so um, that is all the temples in the Bible. And obviously uh, the one in the tribulation uh, completely destroyed because God's not going to allow one that the Antichrist tried to set up and rule from to stay in existence, so that'll be gone. But all of this, um, all of these things that God is doing uh, they tell us in this, in this uh, little two-chapter book that everything that Jesus is telling us, that, that prop, Prophet Haggai was telling the people then, is God is telling us to give him our very best. Don't try and make it something. Just give him all of our hearts in total surrender and in service and worship to him. We're serving in the temple of the body of Christ He's the one that will grow it and make it fruitful, not with oil and wine and fruit, but salvation and disciples. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. And Jesus, we thank you that we are part of the true and living temple. Lord, it's a temple not made with hands, as, as it says in the book of Isaiah, and it says again in the New Testament, Lord, we're a part of the temple not made with hands. We know that Jesus, you're fitting us into your temple and Lord, you have others you want to fit in and Lord, we pray that as we do the work that you've asked us to do and do it with humble hearts and simplicity and just trust in you, Lord, that you'd bless the effort of our hands. Lord, we know that everything we touch is tainted but everything you touch is sanctified. We pray, Lord, your sanctifying work would be working through us and it would be you that would give us the strength not to fear, but to walk forward in faith. And in our little slice of time, our little patchwork on the quilt, if you will, that you would be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. In the little slice of time you had, you built up my temple in honor of your work on the cross. Lord, we do these things not 
for any other reason, just out of gratitude and thankfulness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Why don't you stand as we close in worship?